scripture this morning, let's turn to Ezekiel in chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. In your Bible, this would be page 836. 836. Entire chapter. Ezekiel 13 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Because you have spoken falsehood, And seen a lie, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel that you may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, Where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall, which you plastered over with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone. Along with, the, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord God. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration, prophesy against them. And say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me to my people, to put to death some who should not die, and to keep others alive who should not live, by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands, by which you hunt lives there as birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood, 
when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. Therefore you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination. And I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Congregation, we continue our study of the book of Ezekiel as it teaches us lessons for the church. Lessons for the church from Ezekiel. An unlikely book, it would seem, uh, for which to find lessons for the church. Though we've already seen the call of God from Ezekiel, a call that rests upon every Christian. We've seen the glory of God's presence last week in the glory cloud as it descended on Ezekiel's temple. This morning, we want to look at false prophets, which are also a constant threat and danger to the church of God. False prophets. Now, you know that Ezekiel was a priest. There were three offices in Israel, right? God administered his his, uh, people by way of these three offices, the kings, the prophets, and the priests. I think you remember those. And Ezekiel was a priest. But in the middle of that, Uh, occupation of being a priest, God calls him to be a prophet. Now, the difference between a priest and a prophet uh, is quite quite, uh, simple because it's it's a directional kind of thing. A prophet receives a word from God and he delivers it to the people. Right? A priest receives something from the people, the gifts, the tithes, the offerings, the sacrifices of the people, and he offers it up to God. So the priest goes this way, upwards to God, the prophet receives from God and delivers it, delivers that message to the people. So an easy way to kind of keep a, uh, a difference between what a priest does in his office and what a prophet does in his office. But Ezekiel was a priest and God then calls him to be a prophet. So today, or this morning then, we'd like to consider a prophet. And before we can consider what a false prophet is, we need to know what a true prophet is. And God very clearly gives us that information in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you would in your Bibles, first turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18 so we can understand from the five books of Moses, right, the, the foundation really of Israel like, uh, Israelite life and society, the foundation of all that uh, society is in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. And so we go to Deuteronomy 18 and we find that God is going to teach us now what a prophet is. And we have then in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18, where God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. That is like Moses. And then here is the prophet, right? And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this is what a prophet is, right? He has a word from God and he is now responsible And a very solemn responsibility it is to take that word, not to dilute it, not to soften it, not to harden it, not to modify or change to fit this or that. No, he's to take that word uh, unchanged. And it is to pass through him, you might say, to the people. That is the essential characteristic of a prophet. And verse 19, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So those who hear the word of God, who hear the word of the prophet, and disregard it, dismiss it, throw it aside, God will require it. God will hold them accountable for that sin. 
And in verse 20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So there you see uh, what a uh, what will happen, the, the crime, the penalty, for a man who speaks a word and says, Thus saith the Lord, but it's not his word. It's not God's word. It's his own word. That's called speaking presumptuously. God did not command him to speak. And therefore that prophet must die. That's the penalty for the prophet who speaks a word, but it's not God's word. So this is what a prophet is. Again, the essential characteristic of a true prophet of God is that he has received a word from God and he delivers that unmodified to the people to whom God has called him to prophesy. Well then, it's not going to be that difficult when we turn to Ezekiel 13 to understand what a false prophet is. In Ezekiel 13, we can see very quickly what a false prophet prophet is. So this is my, and my second point there on the outline, a false prophet. And in Ezekiel 13, we see already in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration. And in the Hebrew, it literally says, who prophesy from their own hearts. Do you see that? They didn't receive a word from God. Their own heart gave them that word. This is a prophet who speaks presumptuously, who prophesy from their own inspiration. What do they say? Listen to the word of the Lord. Right? The prophets are always saying that, aren't they? Thus saith the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord in various combinations. They call people to hear the word of God. And these false prophets say the same thing. Hear the word of God. But God never spoke to them. And in verse 3, it continues. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit or their own heart and have seen nothing. God oftentimes spoke to the prophets by giving them visions. God would sometimes speak to a prophet in a visual way. He would give them visions. They would see something. But these false prophets haven't seen anything. Their word comes entirely from their own mind, from their own heart. God did not speak to them. God did not show them anything. And verse 6, this continues. Verse 6, They, that is these false prophets, see falsehood and lying divinations who are saying, The Lord declares. There it is again, right? That's that, that's that uh, announcement uh, that prophets always make. Thus saith the Lord. Right? Thus says the Lord God. And, and again, different, in different words, but more or less, Thus says the Lord God. Well, these false prophets say that too. They say the same thing. The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. In other words, these prophets, they speak, and sometimes it's like they even fool themselves. They really think they're, they're bringing a word from God when it's their own word. And they even look for the fulfillment of the prophecies that they've made. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, you don't have to turn back there right now, let me just read this to you. God speaks to his people in verse 21. He says, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how will we know when we're hearing a false prophet? Because all the prophets say, Thus saith the Lord. How are we going to know which one is telling the truth, which one really has a word from God, and which one doesn't? 
And in Deuteronomy 18 and 21, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And in verse 22, God gives them a test. He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You shall not fear or respect him. He's speaking his own word. In other words, when these prophets make predictions and they don't come true, then you know that is a false prophet. That prophet is speaking presumptuously. Well, in verse 7 of Ezekiel 13, in verse 7, uh, verse 6, I mean, at the end of verse 6, uh, when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope, that very last clause there, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Because they know the test that God gave to his people back in Deuteronomy. And so they're looking for the fulfillment. They're, they're, they're thinking, expecting that God will fulfill the word, the prophecy that they've made. But God never gave them that prophecy. And yet, it's like they still expect that it's going to be fulfilled. It's like they've even fooled themselves. They, 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 they believe their own lie, as it were. Well, their word, of course, uh, that their, their prophecy is not fulfilled. Furthermore, I, uh, Ezekiel gives us uh, two pictures here. And the, the first one, uh, which let me just point out to you, is in verse uh, 4, that the, the, the false prophets are like foxes among the ruins. A false prophet is like foxes among the ruins. And, and you know that the temple of Jerusalem had been broken down in some of the previous assaults that the Babylonian army had made. And, and the Israelites, of course, were busy trying to repair these, right? Because they knew there was likely going to be another one. And so they were trying to repair them. But Ezekiel says, look, your prophets are like the foxes. They're not building up the walls to make them stronger. They're undermining the walls. They're digging about in the, in the ruins. They're making tunnels and homes and dens for themselves in the, in the rubble. They're actually undermining the walls. They're making the walls weak. They're actually causing more destruction. That's just like what the false prophets are doing. They're bringing you a word from God. It's not from God. And they're actually causing problems. They're, they're making more difficulties than they are helping. But then we have this, this other uh, picture which is given us, and that is my third point here, the wall. The wall. Now you can imagine, uh, dear congregation, that when the prophet speaks about a wall, that is something that especially the Jerusalem people, now remember Ezekiel's in Babylon, right? He's not in Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem people would be especially interested to hear about a wall, right? Because they're putting all their faith and confidence and trust in their wall. That's, that's really what they're, you know, that's what they're looking to. Uh, the, the, uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem had two things that they relied on. The first was their own wall. Their own, they were very proud of Jerusalem, right? It was built up and uh, with a huge wall around it. They were also looking to Egypt. But anyways, they, they, they had this wall that they were relying on. And so now when Ezekiel speaks this to the, to the people who are already in captivity, he uses the picture of a wall. And of course that would have been especially effective for these people because they had learned to rely so much on their walls. And so you can see that then in verse, uh, in verse 10. I'm sorry, I, I see I missed some things here. Let me go back. I want to quickly point out the message of these false prophets. The message of the false prophets in verse 10. Right? My, uh, their message is peace. And actually, I'm sure that you probably know the Hebrew word here is shalom. You've heard that word before? Shalom? Right? It means all is well. 
All is peaceful. All is right with the world. In verse 10, this is the message of the false prophets. Shalom, shalom, peace, peace. But God says there is no peace. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back. And he's going to lay waste to this city. That's the message. And by the way, I also want to quickly point out that in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, God directs his judgment against female false prophets. I I neglected to point that out previously, but in in verses 17 to 23, you see that God directs his judgments against the female false prophets. Now, congregation, God did occasionally reveal himself to females, and, and they became prophets. You can think of Huldah and others in the Old Testament that did receive a word from God. But again, these females never heard from God. They are false prophets. All right. So I wanted, to, I wanted to make those points. Before I get now to this third point about the wall that the false prophets build. The wall that the false prophets build. And you see that in verse 10. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. Now, my friends, when I used to live in Grand Rapids, I had uh, in my entryway, I walked in the entryway, and, and my wife can say too, from the, from the very first day, we noticed there was a soft spot in the floor there. And uh, now we're not real, real construction-minded people, so we didn't really take the alarm that we probably should have, right? But it didn't seem to get any better, and it was a soft spot there. And I asked different people about it, and they said, well, you know, it's, it's going to be, something's doing that, right? I mean, it's either water or termites, uh, you know, something's making that. I mean, plywood doesn't just deteriorate for nothing. Something's causing that. And uh, so then finally, one day I got around to tearing it up and there went the termites in every direction, flying for cover. Oh my, termites in the house. Now suppose, suppose children, think with me here a minute, that we had taken that, you know, uh, floor and, and tore it up and put new plywood in and put some new flooring down, make it look nice again, and just went on our way. What do you suppose would happen? There would just be another soft spot in the floor, right? Because the, the termites would just move to another spot, wouldn't they? You didn't deal with the problem. You have to deal with the problem. And in the same way, the prophet is saying, you guys got broken down walls in Jerusalem. The walls are not in good repair. And you want to go up there and just kind of put plaster over them. Drywall mud, right? You, you, you've seen that, right? It makes things nice and smooth, but it's as weak as, as ever, right? You could push it over with your hand if that's all it was. That's what the prophet is saying here. You've got a wall here, and yeah, it looks nice, but it's just plaster with whitewash on it, with paint over it. It looks great, but it's not going to protect anyone. The first person that walks up to it could push it over with their hand. And he says, that's like what the false prophets are doing. They're building up a wall. They're saying to Jerusalem, peace, peace, shalom, everything's going to be fine. God will protect us. God is going to take care of his people. You don't have to worry about a thing. Peace, peace. But God says, there is no peace. Babylon is going to come back. And that wall you're relying on is going to collapse. It's going to be destroyed. And verse 12, this is actually what I said I was going to take as the text for the sermon. Because to me, this question just gets straight to the heart of it, the issue. The straight to the heart of the issue of false prophets. In verse 12, Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, 
Where is the plaster with which you plastered it? In other words, when God's judgments come, when that wall collapses, congregation, you can imagine people standing around that wall saying, what happened? What happened to our wall? We, we plastered it. It looked so beautiful. It was smooth. We even painted it. What happened to our wall? Now we're destroyed. God's judgments are being poured out on us. And this wall that we look to for defense, for protection, why, it just collapsed. Congregation, do you see the wall? Its construction is just plaster. Its destruction is the judgments of God. And then the surprise. Where's the plaster? Where's the wall that we built? This beautiful wall that was going to protect us. That was going to def- we were going to be safe behind these walls. Peace, peace, said the false prophets. Shalom, shalom. But the surprise, the shock, when the wall collapses and they're left defenseless. Well, congregation, let me make some points of application on these, on these truths. My first point is just that deception. Congregation, I think that's something we have to, we have to be honest with ourselves. That deception is a real possibility in the life of Christians. And no Christian likes to think of this. I understand that. No Christian likes to think of those five foolish virgins who got to the door of heaven and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And God said, I never knew you. And they were turned away. Nobody wants to think, no Christian wants to think that they could get to the last day and stand before the great white throne of God's judgments, thinking to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but to be turned away. Think about those people in Matthew 25. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we didn't help you? Remember those people who are turned out. They're turned away. But their thought was, Lord, we were Christians. We prophesied in your name. We we, we did Christian acts of mercy. But God turns them away. He says, depart from me, ye cursed. And I see that in verse 12. I see the surprise that greets these people who come, who are thinking this wall is going to protect me. But the wall collapses before them. And in a sense, they're shocked, they're surprised when God says, depart from me. Ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What? Me? Who did all these things? Where's the plaster? Where's the wall that I was looking to defend me? To protect me? Congregation that lays in ruins at their feet. That wall won't protect you. So there is this real possibility of deception. And I really believe that we have to start here, congregation, to confront this possibility. Because if we don't ever even think this is a possibility, then really you could just as well leave right now because the rest of the sermon is kind of useless. But I'm telling you, if you think that your deception is not really a possibility for you, then you're probably deceived. You're probably the very one standing behind that wall that's just covered with plaster and paint. That's not going to protect anybody. So let's first just grant the possibility, dear congregation, that we can deceive. We, and in this case, this isn't talking so much about self-deception as about deception from others who come to us with very smooth words and are very persuasive and are very cogent. So the possibility of deception is a serious thing. 
and a real possibility for Christians and for Christians in this church. The second point was testing these truth claims. So then we have this responsibility, don't we? To test, to sift, to know what is the truth. The congregation, remember the principal mark of a false prophet is that he comes not with the word of God, but with his own word. The number one characteristic of a false prophet is that he comes with his own word, not with the word of God. What does that mean? That means that if we're going to test these truth claims, we need to know the word of God. Congregation, I have to say with sadness that this is some of the attraction that many find in Roman Catholic churches, in Eastern Greek Orthodox kind of style churches. Because you don't have to test these truth claims. And let's face it, sometimes as Christians we can find this rather irksome. Why do we have to spend so much time talking about Bible doctrine? Why do we have to spend so much time in reading the scriptures? Now, I mean, I hope the, the scriptures are a delight to you, but it's not always that way, is it? And sometimes we can begin to find that a bit irritating, and it's very appealing to people to say, you know, I'll just, I'll just join this church where I just follow the bishop. The bishop hands down to me what I'm supposed to believe. I believe it. I go on my way. I go to heaven one day. Everything is good. I don't have to be so troubled and bothered with all these things. I can just trust that the bishop's going to give me the right. But that's not what we do in Reformed evangelical churches. We believe in sola scriptura. That truth claims have to be tested. And they have to be tested by the word of God. Because false prophets come with their own word. And you know, congregation, it's, just a, it's, it's a thing even in Reformed churches. I took a class one time at Western Seminary in Holland. And, and uh, they were discussing, it was the, I think it was the issue of uh, women serving a, a, in, uh, as elders in offices of the church. And I quoted a few scriptures which speak very clearly to that subject. And one man responded this way. He said, yeah, you know, he says, the Bible has many good things to say on the subject. You see, for him, the Bible was just another voice, right? It was just another word out there amongst many. And he, and, 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 and so... That's how he treated the Word of God. Yeah, you know, the, the Word of God has got a lot of good things to say. It has a, uh, a lot of interesting things there in the Bible. But you see, that's not how we, we, we deal with the Scriptures. That's not how we treat the Scriptures in Reformed circles. Because we know that a false prophet comes with his own Word. But we need to be focused on the Word of God if we're going to uncover these false prophets. And again, we don't have the uh, luxury, if I could say it that way, as they did in the Old Testament, of testing their claims by seeing if what they prophesy comes true. Because in the New Testament, prophets don't make, even the true prophets of God, don't make predictions anymore. That's not how God teaches us and leads us in our day, in our time. So then we need to be the Bereans, right? The Bereans were those noble-minded people who received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's a, that's a church congregation that is concerned with false prophets. That doesn't sit idly by and believe every, uh, every, person, every, uh, every person that claims to bring the truth. And that needs to mark our church congregation that we need to be Bereans. That's why we stress so continually the need for a daily habit of Bible study and reading the scriptures and reading it with understanding. A hundred times better to read one verse with understanding than to read 10, 20, 30, 40 verses and never to engage with it at all. 
testing these truth claims. In congregation, God's gift, I have that point also there under application number two. Because there's something else that I want to press upon you this, this, this morning. And that is God's gift to us of the confessions that we have. And you know, many times I think that the confessions, our catechism and confession and the canons of Dort, are really God's gift to lay people. And, and I mean lay people here, by I don't mean any uh, derogatory... I'm just saying people who are not trained in theology and in biblical exegesis. And why do I say that? Because, congregation, a man can stand up here with, with all kinds of credentials and with all kinds of speech, and he can quote the original language of Scripture. He can quote writer this author and that author, and he can come across very persuasive, and sometimes you think, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to, to, to discern. Is, is this man really preaching the truth to us? But there's something else you can do. You can pick up the confessions of our church. The confessions of our church are the distilled wisdom of many minds. Right? I know that the catechism was written by Zacharias or Sinus and Caspar Levianus, but still, the the minds of all the church have have focused on these writings. They've made changes. They've adjusted it, right? And, and, And the distilled wisdom of God's people over many ages is brought down to us in a very clear, concise format that you can read. Now, should you read your Bible? Of course. That's foundational, right? But when we have a question about the interpretation of Scripture, the confessions are your best friend. You can bring them. You can read them. Now, we have our own confessions, which are beautiful and precious to us, but let me urge you as well to think about the Westminster Standards. They're very interesting to read, you know. It would be a great profitable thing if in your own personal devotional time You, for instance, would take one question and answer of the Westminster Larger Catechism and think about it and meditate on it for that week. And you would find your mind to be trained in these things, to be trained to understand the scriptures and to be discerning. So again, I think that the the, the confessions of the church, the confessions that we have, are really God's gift to you, not to me as well, but to you who, who maybe sometimes can stand there and be Wavering. I'm not real sure. This man sounds very persuasive, right? And the confessions are God's gift to, to lay people. A caution. A caution on also under application too. What books do you read and listen to? What preachers do you listen to? And let me give you this caution, congregation. If your listening and your reading is focused around one man, you may be deceiving yourself. Maybe not even to say you're deceiving yourself. You may not be doing yourself any favors. Let me just say it that way. It may not be healthy. You might not be, he might be a perfectly orthodox man. You might not be deceiving yourselves. But still, there is wisdom, congregation, in hearing from more people. You know, God doesn't just place his spirit upon one man. By the way, I, I preached to myself. I had this once. I, there was a period in my life when I, when I was, when I, when I was just uh, enthralled with one man, and I read every book he wrote, and I remember later reflecting on that, and and that was not a healthy time for me. In fact, that was actually quite a dangerous time. I, I almost went down a road that I, I really would have regretted going down. And I want to caution you against that too. If you've got one, not everybody has their favorite preacher or favorite author. And I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about sometimes we get so swallowed up in one man. All we listen to is one man. 
or all we read is one book, or all we listen to is one denomination of Christians. That's not a healthy thing. That's not a healthy thing. Be careful about that. And then in Jude 20, my last point uh, under this, in Jude 20, we are given a very... And by the way, the whole book of Jude is written against false prophets. This sermon could just as well have taken the book of Jude for its text. But in Jude chapter... Or in verse chap, or, uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, in verse 20, we read, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And in verse 20 there, that is a plural. Building yourselves up. It would be better translated, building each other up in your most holy faith. Congregation, that means that we have a responsibility to each other. We have a responsibility to speak together, to share our questions, our concerns. When we test these truth claims, right, which is what we're talking about here, we have each other. The beautiful thing, congregation, about what God does is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit of God. God says, all my people shall be taught of God. And so all Christians, in the ladies' Bible studies, in the men's Bible studies, in the prayer groups, in the discussion groups, whatever groups we might have, in the conversations that we have here on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, these are the times when we can build each other up in our most holy faith. And of course, congregation, as your pastor... That's my job, isn't it? And that's the happiest part of my job, when I can sit down with people and try to explain to them what the scriptures teach on a given subject. And I'm always happy, of course, to meet with you <coughs> and, to, and to discuss those things. But again, in, in verse 20, Jude is teaching us to see it as your responsibility to minister to each other and to strengthen each other in our most holy faith. I have to hurry here, congregation. Satan's trick my third application, and this is a serious thing as well, because congregation, you know that Satan, one of his best tricks, one of his best devices, is to push people into extremes. Right? And so when he begins to teach us to, to be careful and to watch out against false prophets, he pushes us into extremes. And pretty soon you get some people who become heresy hunters. They see a false prophet under every rock, behind every tree, in every pew. And if you don't speak exactly like they do, if you don't use their terms, if you don't use their, uh, their way of speaking about a certain thing, they raise the cry of heresy. And, and they see themselves as champions for the orthodox truth. And yet they're not very nice people, are they? They've lost the whole purpose of what it means to have the truth. They raise every error into a heresy. When they disagree with a preacher or a pastor, they, 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 they raise the issue to such a great degree that pretty soon congregation, one finds that they have to worship by themselves. And I wonder sometimes if this isn't part of the, uh, the force behind the, the, whole, the house church movement. If they can't get along with anybody else, so they can only worship with themselves because they can't get along with anybody. They don't agree with anyone, and if you don't speak exactly like they do, they cut you off, and, and everybody's a heretic, and they, they damn people to hell. It's awful. And so again, a, a trick of Satan congregation to, to bring us to the, this, uh, this problem of false prophets and he pushes us into this extreme and pushes us into another error. And congregation, that's why I gave us on the outline this, this lovely quote from Richard Baxter. It's a difficult quote. That's why I put it in here. But it's, it's, it, it has so much truth to it and I really want to read that with you. 
He says, seek after the truth for the love of truth and love it especially for its special use. In other words, God gives us the truth for a reason. And what is that reason? Well, Baxter says, as it formeth the heart and life to the image and will of God and not for the fanciful delight of knowing, much less for carnal or worldly ends, no means are used at all as means where the end or the purpose is not first determined. Right? We, first we, 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 we fix our mind on a purpose, this is what I want to accomplish, and then we choose means to accomplish that end. Uh, and to do the same thing materially to another end is not indeed to do the same, for thereby it has made another thing. And then he gives an illustration. He says, your physician will come to you if you seek to him as a physician, but not if you send to him to mend your shoes. So if you seek knowledge for the true ends of knowledge, to fill your hearts with the love of God, and to guide your lives in holiness and righteousness, God is engaged to help you in the search. But if you seek it, that is, if you seek knowledge, the truth, only for to please your pride or fancy, no wonder if you miss of it. And it is no greater matter whether you find it or not. For any good it is like to do you. Every truth of God is appointed to be his instrument to do some holy work upon your heart. Let the love of holiness be it that maketh you search after truth. And then you may expect that God should be your teacher. And again, congregation, I, I hope you can take that quote and even take it home and, and read it over again. That the truth is to have its effect upon our heart and life. It is to make us better people. It is to make us holy. It is to make us more like Jesus. And when we keep this in our mind, we can avoid that extreme of becoming one of these uh, heresy hunters who denounce everybody who doesn't speak like them as a heretic. Congregation, does your love for the truth of God make you a better person? That's the question under this second point. Does it make you a person more kind, more gentle, more humble, more loving? We might ask ourselves that question. Because if, it not, if that's not the case, then the use, the purpose of the truth of God in our hearts has been missed. It's as if we sent for the physician to mend our shoes. We're using the truth for the wrong reason. Well, congregation... My last point there is the true prophet. And I'll just mention this. What a blessing it is that we can end the sermon in Christ. Because Christ is the true prophet. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He came down from heaven. He's the perfect prophet. He's the true prophet. In congregation, I call you this morning to sit at his feet. He's the true prophet. To sit at his feet like Mary of old. And by doing that, we find that one thing that is needful. And we never need to fear missing the truth when we sit at the feet of Jesus. Congregation, I bring you back to the beginning where we as a congregation want to be those who are saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. For your church, your servants here, all of us, are listening, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would not give our ears to false prophets, that we would give our ear to the great true prophet who teaches us the truth and who never 
leads us astray. Congregation, may we all be found at Jesus' feet with Mary of old. And may he be our great teacher. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning praying earnestly, Lord, that we might have a place at the feet of Jesus. And that the truth of Christ would flow into us. And that it would also flow out of us. And that the truth, your truth, O oh Lord, would have its would have its proper purpose in us, that it would find its true reason, that it would make us more Christ-like, more Christ-centered, that it would find us and make us and shape us and form us to be humble seekers after the truth. But Lord, we do pray that you would also give us a steel in our backs to stand strong, against those who would come into this place with their own word. And that we would be discerning and willing to be Bereans, testing the different truth claims that we hear. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would be in us. Uh, when the Apostle John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits. Lord, give us that spirit, give us that willingness, and also the skill in doing that. So we don't fly into extremes of, of being too tolerant on the one hand or of being too, uh, too vigorous in this that we lose the purpose of the truth on our hearts and souls. Lord, will you please remember us then this day? Bless this day to us. Help us to use it for the purpose for which you have given it to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring us back this evening to the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Congregation, I do remind you at this time of the uh, song service uh, next week in the evening. Next week is a uh, classes meeting for myself. So I will not be with you Sunday evening, next Sunday evening. I'll be in the Trinity United Reformed Church in Caledonia, near Grand Rapids. But I pray God's blessing upon you as you meet together for worship with uh, Pastor Jeff Noble. And the song service begins at 520. And do note as well that this morning we have our own uh, fellowship time downstairs uh, after the service. You're, of course, welcome to join us for that. Let us close our worship service then by turning to number 154 in the blue hymnal. 154, where we hope to sing. Uh, and let's just sing the first, uh, let's sing verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 of number 154. Why hast thou broken down its circling wall, that they may pluck who pass along the way? Wild beasts from out the wood destroy it all, and feed upon thy vine by night and day. We'll sing verses 4 and 5 of 154. Then after the doxology will be 